My life is very, very different, but the one thing that hasn't changed is the richness of human stories and the depth of connection that, that you build. You know, hospitality is all about customers and farmers and you know, the inside jokes in the kitchen and all that sort of stuff. And you build this you know, rich, diverse relationships. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It wasn't all that long ago that the idea of sustainability and care for the environment were marketing catchphrases and cliches. But times have changed. The notion of sustainability is not just about food waste. And for chef Jared Ingersoll, it's become a life ambition to not only change habits, actions, and ideals about the notion of sustainability, but how to put them into practice within venues, culture, businesses, to make a better planet for all of us. Jared, how are you? I am excellent, thank you, Anthony. You've got a pretty um, pretty big mission uh, <laughs> at the moment. Um, what's it like delving into the world of sustainability um, like you have in, in you know over the last decade? Um, I've always been. I've always been engaged in sustainability. It's just that nowadays it's just becoming a lot more front of mind. And when people think about sustainability, it's you know it's a bit more of an articulate thing. Um, and it's also shifting from you know when you know when I started Dank Street Depot all those years ago, it was very much focused on. Um, I had the sort of mission of wanting to make the world a better place, one mouthful at a time, and very much focused on local local seasonal and sustainable um like it wasn't just a catchphrase it was like you know because you know yeah just having that connection to seasonality and provenance um meant that we could really focus on working with growers and suppliers that practiced um you know good um animal husbandry and looked after the environment you're right. I mean, as you say, it was as well before sort of this um, path that you've taken at the moment and with Dank Street Depot. Were there challenges at the time in trying to take that approach and, and change people's minds? Yeah. And at the beginning, I think um, the mistake that I made in the beginning um, was I was on a bit of a mission and um, I uh, kind of made it a little bit political in some ways. Um, you know, we we sort of made a point of, um, you know, there was yeah. You know, you'll probably remember there was there was a while there when everyone was um, you know hundred mile, um, you know only buy food from a hundred miles and um, and so we did things such as uh, focusing just on New South Wales wines, for example. And at that time, it was um, sometimes seen as being, oh, you're only doing that because of environmental reasons, and, and that was true, but we're also doing it because we wanted to celebrate the, the range and the diversity and the quality of New South Wales wines. Um, and, and so there was a, a period where people weren't interested, they just wanted lunch. <laughs> and, and, um, and so it was trying to get the balance right to make sure that we were delivering um, food on time, like, you know, and at the right price so that um, – and then use the food and the quality of the food to then start the conversation. 
rather than hitting people with the conversation to start off with. Take us back into the kitchen with Dank Street Depot when you were really sort of starting this movement and, and changing also the perceptions of everyday eats uh, in, in Australia. Um, you Were you getting in sort of whole animals and, and trying to break down to reduce food waste and all those sort of things in the kitchen as well? Yeah, definitely. And and so it was a bit of a journey. So when, when, when we first started, um, we opened up um, – we had no idea how busy it was going to be. We had a queue at the door the next day, and that queue sort of stayed with us for about you know, 11 years. And um, our weekends were just monstrous. So we kind of got slapped pretty hard at the beginning. And so the first period of time was just trying to keep the just trying to keep up. But then once we sort of established our um, our systems and processes, because what we were trying to do hadn't really been done before, like you had the likes of Shape and Nice, or you might have like, you know, some regional restaurants where they're sitting in food bowls and they've got that easy access. But we were sort of um, in, you know, semi-industrial part of Sydney that no one really went to. And <laughs> and it was um and so it was um yeah, we, we opened up with just a blackboard menu. Um, and it took a while to um, I didn't just communicate what the, the vision was to our suppliers and then make connections with really good growers and, and providers. And so, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, yeah, some of the things we used to do were, you know, with, with seafood rather than putting uh, like a particular species of fish on the menu, I would, you know, just you know, work really closely with like, you know, what seafood was available, and I really tried to focus on things that weren't just salmon or tuna or you know groper, like just work with species that are a little bit more diverse. Um, we always used to buy in whole fish and um, you know whole poultry, and then we started you know working our way up the you know the size of the beast. So you know then we'd get in whole lambs, whole pigs. Um, and then we started experimenting with buying whole cows and we didn't have a lot of space. So the way that we'd manage the bigger animals would just buy them in quarters and break them down. Tell us about bringing in that sort of whole pig or um, breaking down a whole pig and, and how you used all of it across a menu. Uh, it was it was a real joy. So I'd been really lucky to have worked at Bayswater Brasserie back in the day. And so we'd go through 10 to 15 lambs a week and we're, we're just constantly breaking down animals. Um, the the volumes of meat that we we're doing at Dank Street weren't anywhere near the same amount. So, you know, we're, instead of getting 15 lambs, we'd get, you know, two or three um, or, or one or two pigs. Um, and so you then have to, you know, sort of manage the parts of the animal so you just sort of work through the whole thing and some cuts you'd need to serve, you know, fairly quickly like the and other all the really beautiful things like the tails and the ears and the and the offal and, and just those smaller pieces um would sort of work out different ways of either not of preserving them until you had enough to put a dish on the menu. Um but the I know this is the crackling and so let's let's dwell on the pig for a bit. <laughs> I was actually Thank thinking, you. <laughs> I was thinking about um, when you asked me to 
come on this podcast, which I was honored to do, I always, like, I try to think about like, you know, what is it about a pig that I, I like? And it's like, I, it's always on my menu and it's always in my diet. But when I used to deal with it, the one thing I used to love is it was, it's a really nice thing to break down. Um, like I really enjoyed the process of butchering, butchering a pig. It, you know, would would get an animal in. Um, would always go to lengths to make sure that um, we had some sort of knowledge or at least connection with the producer of the pigs. And I'd try to buy pigs from different places, and, and yeah, it wasn't just a case of dealing with one supplier all the time. Because I like to diversify the story of the different animals. Um, but then, so we'd get the animal and let it sit in the hang in the core room for you know anywhere from two to five days i didn't like dealing with the pigs when they were fresh i liked them when they just hung for a bit and um i haven't broken out a pig for a while but like it's i used to love the fact that they were really nice and easy to cut um they're really clean you make really nice clean cuts and and even the fat was like when you break down lambs it's a different type of fat. Like it's sort of really, it's cloying and it's got that sort of aroma to it. But a pig is just like, it's nice and it's clean. It's very easy to work with. I want to explore, um, you know, what you did with Dank Street Depot and beyond that. But take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family as a kid? It played, so played, a, well, it played the role of keeping us alive. So... <laughs> That was um yeah mum um yeah mum brought up us kids uh by herself and and so food was functional um she wasn't she was one of those um she was an awesome cook but she wasn't doing yeah uh, there were no phones and you know there, there was nothing there was yeah it was all just sort of like um feeding the kids um. And, but she really, really loved food. And it was kind of the thing that really got me um, sort of, it, it, something in my head clicked when I was very, very young. And one of the first things I cooked for my mum was a, um, a beggar's chicken. And I got the recipe from a, um, from Woman's Weekly. And, and, um, and it was like a, a chicken with all these beautiful um, Chinese spices and flavorings and, and you've wrapped up in a salt crust and baked. And um, and I was, I think it was about 12 when I did that. And there were two things that sort of clicked in my head. Like the first one was that um, to find star anise in Upper Hutt in New Zealand when I was 12 was not easy. <laughs> and so to find the ingredients was a bit of a process. And I kind of really enjoyed that component of, you know, looking at a recipe, figuring out what these words were. This is, yeah, this is pre-Google. So it was like, you know, you know having to do the good old, do the, the, um, the procurement, the good old fashioned way by just going down to the shops. And, and then the other thing that really blew me away and sort of cemented everything that I wanted to do um, in my head, even though I didn't, hadn't quite worked it all out. But when mum finally got around to, eating um where she would normally be cooking every single night i took that chore away from her and i gave her something that she had not eaten before and she loved it and there was just this moment of um i was sort of proud i was really proud and made mum happy and that made me feel really awesome and 
and that sort of feeling, um, maybe I've always been needy, but that's one of the things that's always fueled me when it's come to, when, you know, I've, I've just always loved um, the feeling of giving someone something nice to eat and, and making their day just a little bit better. And um, yeah. What, what were your first steps into um, a job as a chef? Oh man, I, I hated school and um, school hated me. And so we had a falling out and I left school really young. Um, and the deal with mum was that she would only let me leave school early. I think I was uh, 15. And um, I could only leave school if I went to this hospitality train. There was like a hospitality training sort of um, thing set up for for kids that – you know, just where school wasn't working for them. Um, between 12 and 15, I'd sort of went through a few different things about what I wanted to do. Like I was going to be, I wanted to be a fireman and a helicopter pilot. And and then I just started cooking more. So then when I got to the age of 15, I was like, yeah, like, that's what I want to do. And so I, I started this, it was like a, I think from memory, it was about a three-month full-time course. And then... Started working in a couple of takeaway joints, um, then you know, rose up through the ranks, went from takeaway joint to pub to hotels. And so in New Zealand, I spent most of my time working in hotels. What did you take from those early years? Um, I think starting from um, places that, you know, by no means fancy, like literally just like, you know, a pub getting smashed for lunch and schnitties and, and pies. It's just how to work hard and how to hustle. And you had to be fast. Um, you had to have um, – so I, I – and I, that really, really worked for me I, because the way that my head works is I like to have things mapped out. Um, and before going into a kitchen, I didn't – I hated being a teenager. It was – you know, there was a bunch of stuff going on and it just really used to just, I wasn't enjoying life. And then I would go into a kitchen and it was fast paced and people needed you to perform. And there wasn't, um, it, there was no, there was very little room for error and for error. Sorry. And so I, I really sort of in, enjoyed that environment. And, um, and then over the years, um, you know, one of the good things about being a chef is that most people in hospitality, I think, that people um, think of chefs as, you know, cooks and we do nice things with pigs and food and stuff. But you have to be, you have to be really organised. You, you have to be, you have, you have to be able to manage um, high workload. You need to be able to crisis control situations. You need to be um, meticulous. You need to be forward thinking. There's a lot of skills that go into being a chef, even before you start getting into the um, yeah, the the fancy stuff and and the things that you see on um, on the magazines or on Instagram. You spent some of your career in the UK at some pretty incredible restaurants. Do you have any stories of of what that experience was like coming from a, a um, small place in in New Zealand to sort of London and and all of that it offered? Oh, yeah, well, man, it was awesome. I loved it. I often I'd go back to London in a heartbeat. It's um. It's a fun town. So I left 
so I've, you know, I've worked through a few restaurants and then I got to a point in Wellington before I left um, New Zealand um, and then I worked everywhere that I wanted to work. So then I came to Sydney for a few years and I worked at Basel de Brasserie um, and that was probably one of the most influential restaurants I worked at um, because of the meticulous attention to provenance and, and things like, you know, Tony Pappas wanted to serve uh, shut oysters, which wasn't being done at the time. And so you had to go through and create programs with Sydney Water and all these sort of things just to be able to um, be allowed to pop an oyster in a restaurant. And there are not many – I mean, you know, it's a different different environment back then to now. Like, you know, it's, it's heavily compliant now, but it, it was that sort of um, – he had this vision, I want to open an oyster in a restaurant, and so a chef would normally stick a knife in the back, pop it, chuck it on some ice, you're away. But he had to go through this whole program, rebuild the kitchen, you know, a bunch of stuff. And and so his um, – and, and also I worked with another really close friend of mine, Michael Clausen, and, and it was just that focus and dedication and to the ingredients. And that that that, that, that was – I carried that I, – I still carry that now. And then by the time we got over to London – um, I did a brief stint in one of Terence Conran's restaurants, uh, Mezzo, which was uh, incredible. It was a circus. It was, you know, we'd do you know, massive covers, but it was like all, um, you know, you'd have a production kitchen where you, so you never actually touched any prep. You'd go in and you'd pick up your 370 portions of salmon that you were serving for lunch and, and someone else. So it was just, it was a huge machine. And then I was very fortunate to um, get a chance to join the team at the square under Philip Howard. And that just, like it just about killed me. Um, it was a really, really tough environment and not tough in the sense of like, uh, you know, you got the, at the time, Gordo and, and Aubergine was famous for screaming and shouting, but the Philip's kitchen was never like that. Um, it was tough because the expectation of quality from everybody in that kitchen was just freaking phenomenal. And and it didn't matter what you touched. Yeah, it like it was not one of the first lessons I received working there was when I was I was going down hard. I was on the hot um, starter section and we had this really intricate dish of longestine and scallop and that was just a stunning thing. And I didn't see one of the scallops properly because I was just in the shed. I was, I was, I was so far behind. I was going down hard, and so I, you know, I tried to slip up something past. Neither the head chef, the two, or the two sous chefs pulled me up. It was the guy that was working on, um, on I think on the larder section, and he just was like, "Oi, look what he's doing! He's trying!" And everybody, the whole brigade, just was like. The whole brigade turned because it was that moment of um, you're not doing this because chef told you to doing it. You've let the whole, the teams yeah the team was like you've let us all down because you're you you're prepared to let something slide. And um, and and the ingredients that we worked with over there. So yeah, I went from Tony's and Michael's very sort of. Um, uh, delicate, free-flowing touch to things that were just ridiculously intricate. Um, really, really precise cooking. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a it was a stunning exper experience. 
there's all types of breeds of um, pigs over there. Do you, do you remember any sort of pig dishes in your time at, at the square and or also met, Metso? Not like Metso was a machine, so I can't even remember if we had pork. On, there might have been pork on the menu, but I actually can't remember it. But, um, the, and, but Metso was that thing. Like I was on the fish section and I was only there for like two and a half months. And so I didn't touch anything other than pre cut fish. Um, and the square, we would get pork periodically, but not, I think in the early days, and, and I also sense this a bit in some restaurants, like I remember trying to put pork on um, a menu, oh, it was like 20 years ago, and it had this little bit of a stigma to it, it was like, pork's the cheap meat, and if you want to be a fancy restaurant, like, you know, you, you're not going to serve a sausage. Um, so pork would normally take form in beautiful charcuteries or things that were done with um, that required finesse and craft and 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 um, or maybe like you know the airs used for a garnish and, and things like that. But you know, you'd always see prosciutto and, and pancetta and lardons. You'd be chucking lardons around like a ninja star. But, but the idea of like you know doing something like um, uh, you know putting a delicious steamed ham on the menu or something like that wasn't wasn't really done but and and um or at least I didn't get exposed a lot to it and it wasn't until I came back to Sydney that I really leaned into putting whole pigs on the menu and um and just enjoyed that that thing of showcasing the diversity of the whole entire animal well tell us about your time when you came back to um, to Sydney, you, you were head chef at Bayswater Brasserie. What what was it like being a, being a head chef? It it was really good. It was um, I enjoyed getting back, but at the when I was the head chef of Bayswater, it was like Bayswater had sort of changed and had changed hands, and and the place had kind of lost its magic. And I came back from London. Uh, with a real enthusiasm to do really amazing kick-ass food. Like I sort of wanted to take what I'd taken from the square and I wanted to sort of bring that back to Sydney. And it didn't really fit. Bay's Order's a brasserie. It's, it's a different beast. And, um, I, you know, I love those guys. I've got so much fond memories of it, but I couldn't – it just didn't feel right. And so then I sort of was a little bit disenfranchised and sort of – Dossed around a few kitchens and did a few jobs here and there, and and um, wasn't really inspired to do like nothing really caught me. And and then this opportunity popped up at, in Waterloo, and the the light bulb moment was um, I was able to take the discipline that I learnt from you know, working in pubs when I was younger. And the intensity to detail that I learned from both the square and Bayswater Brasserie and try to see if I could do something a little bit mental and chuck it into a cafe. (laughs) 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 And, like, it didn't – it just made sense because, to me, like, in the time – we we were a cafe and our top-selling dish – uh, for as long as there was a chicken sandwich, and it was a freaking good chicken sandwich, but um, the, it really sort of 
what I, what I found was that like all the dishes, like there was no entree main course. You'd come for a plate of food. You might get like some of uh, some garlic bread to kick things off. Um, you might finish sharing your dessert, but generally that plate of food was enough to. You, you don't need much more. Yeah, we'd always try to sell a chip and a salad on the side because you know that food costs. You got to you got to work that beast. But so we then did dishes that you you could eat and just be satisfied with as a complete thing. And um, and yeah, it was a really it was a fun time. And we used to muck around with um, you know, things like a chicken sandwich, like. A, so what? But it was a chicken and roast corn sandwich, but beautiful chickens, beautiful bread. Um, you know, everything was made from scratch. We'd strip the corn and roast it in butter and garlic and, you know, stuff the birds. And, and so there was a – we'd take something that was simple and <laughs> I look back at it now. We took, we'd take a simple idea and try to make it as hard for ourselves as possible. <laughs> But ultimately delicious. Like it was just that thing of like if, if there was a it was a, if there was a shortcut to be found, um, it couldn't it wouldn't yeah you couldn't muck around it to the, to the deliciousness. Like if we find a quicker right way of prepping corn, yeah, go for it. But the corn is always going to be roasted in butter and garlic and salt and thyme. You mentioned a bit earlier um, how much joy you you have um, breaking down a whole pig, and you used to do that in Dank Street Depot. Is there any dishes that you remember from from the years? Uh, the pork dishes um, from breaking down those pigs. Oh man, there's so many. I was actually really I was, I was trying to rack my brain. Like there was there was we did a bacon hash that didn't come from the whole pigs. We'd get speck brought into that, and um, and I still see that pop up in, on menus. And with friends, like there's a mate of mine that's just opened up a joint up near Foster, and he's um, he's got a bacon hash on there, and it's like one of those ones. It's like it's it's kind of it's a perfect uh, dish for high volume, massive loads of flavour. You're just like braising, you're rendering down big, you know, cubes of of speck, and then in all that fat, you're just loads of onions and garlic and rosemary and you just roast it all down until it becomes sticky and then you chuck the potatoes in and then you just end up with this big fatty vat of roasted delicious stuff and um and then just whack a couple of poached eggs on it but um but then when it came to the breaking down the whole pig like it was i used to love slow roasting um pigs like the shoulders and the necks um i used to love brining the legs and would would often steam them or poach them, um, sometimes steam them in hay. Um, all the trim, like there's, and this is another thing, I, when I say I love, I love a whole pig, is like it, everything, there's not one bit on a pig that's not delicious. Um, and so everything would get used. The, the fat would keep, would make sausages. If there wasn't enough trim for sausages, would make little, uh, maybe like a little, a little patty and, and, or would make our own um, pancetta. Pancetta is probably the easiest thing. I tried doing things like bacon and, and yeah, more sophisticated things, but it's when you're not set up for it, it's, it's hard to do. But pancetta is pretty fail safe. Um, all the bones, like you know, I wouldn't. I would always use pork bones in my beef jus. Um, I would always put pork mint, pork mints into my meatballs and um, my bolognese. Um, so we would use the pork as a primary thing like such as a slow roasted shoulder or um, a really delicious uh, cutlet but 
Would it use pork as an ingredient in other dishes? Dank Street Depot, you know, is credited for one of the leaders of that, the notion of casual dining, and, and it was more than a decade uh, in existence. Was it hard for you to let go of such an influential uh, establishment? No, real easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I jest. Like, I mean, yes, it was easy because it was time to go, but it was a very, very difficult um, pro- uh, process. Um, it meant, yeah, I like even uh, I couldn't figure out who I was, and I know that sounds a bit overly dramatic, but what do you call a chef without a kitchen? And Dang Street Depot was so ingrained as to as part of my identity and, and I put so much of myself into it and um, that when it did come time to leaving Dang Street, um, it was pragmatically, it was easy. It's day had done, uh, the, the land, you know, difficulties of the landlord, you know, business was going down, a lot more competition. So on that sense, it was it was easy. But it was that whole sort of really sort of stripping stripping away that massive part of my identity. Um, and I'm very lucky that I had very good friends around me in the support network that actually helped me sort of think about it in a less dramatic way. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, look, shut up. Like, you, you know, you've got all these other skills. You can do this, you can do that. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, thanks for that. Well- well, let's talk about those other skills because because it's true. Like you've done so many things since then, and we'll probably need like five episode podcasts to go through them all. But one of, one of the key features is sustainability within businesses, within culture, within restaurants, and it's it's not just about food wastage. But can you talk to us about um, sort of your approach and sort of what you're doing now in that space? Uh, yeah. Um, so. I think it sort of started to touch on it before about the different skills that you gain when you work in hospitality. Um, I was actually listening to one of your podcasts um, just, just earlier today, actually, and um, oh god, I can't remember the, the lawyer from Melbourne. Um, he did policy and then got into hospitality. And yeah, and what's the name? Sorry, I should remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we often hear of people coming from other. Um, industries into hospitality and how being a lawyer really helped them understand the compliancy issues of opening a restaurant, etc. Just as an example, but it's kind of not that many people. It's it's not really thought of like when you're leaving hospitality. Um, you, it's kind you kind of get pigeonholed, I think, and I've experienced that a few times. Just people go. Oh, like even now, people go, um, "Oh, you're the chef," and it's like, "Yeah, I haven't really cooked for a while, but you know, it's a title that I." I love and, and but um so what I did was I um over the years of Dank Street Devo I'd done a lot of work for different not-for-profits and NGOs and it was uh, myself and Alex Herbert were the um founding signatories of the Greenpeace uh, GMO charter and and so all we were you know I, I built relationships with um DPI and New South Wales Farmers Association and so and oh yeah, and you'll also recall like um you know, and I and, and Schussman went down to that um South Australian thing and and so I was able to sort of take my skills as a chef and 
um, and sort of hone them into different areas and with sustainability being the focus. So in a, you know, I'll wrap up the last 12 years by going, um, I worked um, helping raise capital for um, Australia's first cultivated seaweed industry. In that time, I was sort of doing consultancy work for, you know, do a consultancy work for a restaurant, but then it turned into a group. And then I joined a consultancy firm. We, we were doing um, master plans and um, you know, really high level strategic work. And in that, I was always the, um, the sustainability guy where, um, and it was always driven from a place of um, passion and determination to make the world better. Um, which sounds a bit wank when you say it out loud, but you know it's, it's true. Like I generally believe that you know um, that we're at a very important time, and and um, and so then over the years, the complexity of the projects and the scale of the projects grew. I've recently finished up as the head of sustainability for a, a tech company, and that was an incredible role, and um, really proud of the work that that was done there um and so sustainability the principles of sustainability are essentially do as little have as little impact on the natural world as you can and where possible listen to the um the practices of how to look after the environment around you and so that's kind of what that looks like but then when it comes to translating it what does that mean um, like when you know, with a tech company, um, being sustainable for an engineer means how your data is moving, um, what sort of energy is going to the data houses where all that's, that's stored, what sort of energy is being used, and um, and, and efficient um, build principles. So, in that conversation, sustainability doesn't come up. You're just talking about efficiencies um, with if you're talking finance people at the moment, sustainability is returning, uh, what is it, like 14% for most investors. Like it's the, there's more money being invested into climate technology than education and health globally at the moment. And, um, and uh, I lost my train of thought. So when, when we think about sustainability, it's, it's painfully complex and you'd need to sort of understand the complexity but then once you sort of get your head around it it's actually quite simple like it does come down to simple targets um buy from here not from there um communicate uh, your values and your goals uh, throughout your supply chain so all your suppliers and, and uh, perspective suppliers know what your your values are and um, and there's a lot of nerdy spreadsheets and stuff in there as well. <laughs> well, but give give us a um, kind of example it's in the food industry, say for, for a restaurant or cafe that you know really wants to push into that world, but is sort of uncertain how to sort of um, become more sustainable all 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 round. You know, what how, how do you approach that, and what and what can they do? Um, the first step I suggest is. Um, is to just sort of look at what you're doing. Um, and we, you know, most people want to spring into action straight away. And if you want to spring into action, there's some really, really awesome things you can do. You look at your waste streams. Um, if you've got a hospitality venue and you're not electrifying everything as fast as possible, then 
in the next couple of years, you're A, going to be paying too much money um, for your gas, and, and um, um, but you're also going to be less attractive to developers who want to have a five-star green-rated building. Um, so there are things that you can do like like quickly, such as change your power bill. Um, don't get a gas combi, get an electric combi. Um, do do the numbers on what it would look like to get an induction cooktop as opposed to a, um, yeah, a six burner. These are sort of things. But um, the first thing you do is just sort of just have a look at your business. Um, have a look at how much you're throwing away. Um, have a look at what you're throwing away. So, you know, if you're chucking away loads and loads of cardboard boxes from your deliveries, talk to your supplier. Just go, look, hey, can I, uh, you know, a, can you either take the boxes back or can we have containers and just sort them around? Um, look at your – for a hospitality venue, I'd always really, really encourage the two biggest motivating factors. In, number one is your customers and number two is food and beverage. And with your customers, um, we know that about 74% of Australians take climate change uh, seriously and want to see action done on it. And I won't go down the rabbit hole of talking about um, the complexities of climate action, but seventy-four percent of your customers, um, three-quarters of your own, uh, care. So, what is the language that you're sharing with them? Are you giving them something that makes them feel good about it? You know, an example I used uh, the other day was like, you know, when I was talking to a restaurant group that I've just started working with. um, It's not about forcing your customers to buy wine from the tap because you a lot of venues they need old mate with a black card to come in and drop 450 bucks on a bottle of wine that makes them look awesome and so it's not about removing that you don't want to you can't cannibalize your offer you have to give your customer what they want you need to make them feel awesome and feel like rock stars so what are the things that you can impact are you buying your meat from um, from a good place? You know, is, is the animal husbandry um, appropriate for – like if you don't care, you're just bashing out like you – know, if you don't care and you're just bashing out high-volume food, you will have to care in about five years' time because that's the way sustainability is working. So if you do care, jump on and engage with as many people in, in your supply chain as possible. You, you, you've made a huge uh, career shift utilizing all the skills that you've acquired over the years in, in hospitality and in other areas. How different is your life and what do you love about what you do? Um, my life is very different. Um, I have to pay for salt flakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this is one of the things that I missed when I stepped away from restaurants is you don't have that amazing amazing food on tap you have to buy it like a normal person and um and that can be a little bit inconvenient um so there's that but the when i think back on it and i think about all these different roles that i've had and the different types of work that i'm doing and i'll give an example of a like i've just I'm on the board of this organization called the pure foundation and we're working very closely with um with um, communities and uh, we've got um, a couple of training programs um, around 
um, mentoring and helping people on country up north and in this place called um, Mangala um, and working with traditional knowledge systems and learning about um, culture and culturally appropriate sort of projects that we're sort of um, working on and there's a bunch of stuff in there around you know EB conversions that we're doing and and um, there's a lot of sustainability work but it's that thing that I have always been like I said earlier I've always wanted to make people happy and I've always felt responsible for how I make them happy um, I've always had a sense of responsibility around the produce that I purchased because I know that if I make the wrong decision, then I'm not really looking after the land. And it's the – my life is very, very different. But the one thing that hasn't changed is the rich, the richness of human stories and the depth of connection that, that you build. Now, hospitality is all about customers and farmers and, you know, the inside jokes in the kitchen and all that sort of stuff. And you build this, you know, rich, diverse relationships with, you know, kitchens don't discriminate. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you can speak, what, what language you speak, if you can poach eggs, you've got the job as a breakfast cook. Um, and so this richness and diversity of humans is, is the one thing that still just – it makes me so happy when I think about the different things that I'm doing and have done. Like, it's not all been good, but it's, you know, you, you do mistakes and stuff, but it's like, um, you know, the work that we're doing with, um, with communities at the moment, really looking at the challenges facing um, First Nations people in Australia and the obstacles that are set up and then taking the knowledge of sustainability and and um and more sort of uh, project management and strategic thinking um but doing it in um you know a, a culturally appropriate way is a really beautiful and exciting thing that, that i'm very much engaged in at the moment and i, I couldn't have done it if i didn't know how to run a kitchen well jared it's absolutely inspiring um what you're doing in in so many facets and um changing changing businesses and lives and um changing the way we think about particularly sustainability and food we've loved having you on the crackling today to hear your story please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon absolutely loved being here take care Huck. this is the crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. i'm anthony huckstep Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.